All right, thank you. And for those of you online, thank you for putting up with that. I imagine what that might have sounded like if you had headphones in. Um, turn to Philippians chapter 1, where we'll talk about what to do when things don't go the way you want them to. Literally, it's the point of our message today. So that was just a good introduction illustration. Uh, my, my illustration question, as we get in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, is... What do you do when the movie in your head doesn't happen? You may say movie in your head, what do you mean? That's a phrase that Audrey and I use often as we've come to understand the importance of how we respond to unmet expectations, right? So by movie in your head, what I mean is you, you have a picture, a, a, an outcome, an expectation of how you desire or anticipate, if not both things, something to go, right? You, you have a conversation you're going to have. You're going to share good news with somebody or bad news with somebody, and you have a movie in your head of how that's going to go, or you're going to attempt something, and as you attempt that thing and you go about that thing, you have a movie in your head, a, a way that you anticipate that that might play out. And it, it, you probably have a way that you anticipate that you hope it turns out, and that movie in your head. And so what do you do when that doesn't happen? As a matter of fact, a lot of research in marriage stuff will show you that uh, how you respond to unmet expectations in marriage has a lot to do with the health of your marriage, how you deal with that when your spouse doesn't do something that you expected, something that you desired, or really in any relationships, right? Um, I think... We all probably know somebody that really shouldn't be at the top of your list to take exciting news to, because when you take exciting news to them, their response is almost always going to be to point out the possible negative outcomes, right? As so you go, oh, let me tell you about this great thing that happened. Well, have you considered, right? And they, they drop some bomb on you. They drop a little cold water on you, and you're like, okay. And, and what's crazy is eventually you think we might learn that those don't need to be the first people we call uh, but oftentimes they can be. What do you do in your Christian life as you go about growing in your Christian life and maturity when things don't go the way you hope? One of the things I've done here is always tried to communicate clearly, uh, not not in a bashing type way, uh, but just the, the the fallacy, the error of what is called prosperity preaching, right? Where where we, we teach some people in this world, teach that if you follow Christ, if you give your life to the Lord and you love the Lord and you read your Bible and you go to church and you tithe and you sow that seed, then all these good things will happen to you and you'll be healthy and wealthy and, and that's how God blesses us. And one of the things I've pointed out to you continuously over the years is that one of the biggest problems with that theory is plainly Scripture. As we look at the Bible, it's just not how we see it play out. But not only in the Bible is that not how we see it play out, really in everyday life, that's not how we see it play out, right? I mean, as you look at the lives of faithful people, um, almost always you're not going to find where everything just goes great. I, I, an example people use often is the Elliots, Jim Elliot, Elizabeth Elliot, and their family as they went down to share the gospel in South America. 
and with a tribe that no one had reached. And people warned him, what will you do when you encounter this tribe if they were to react violently? And would you use your gun to defend yourself? And Jim Elliott quickly replied when he was asked that, no, of course I would not. Um, They don't know where they'll go when they die, but I do know where I'll go. And so he willingly put himself in harm's way because he knew that's what God was calling him to. And there are so many great quotes from him and his wife, Elizabeth, as he was eventually killed by that tribe. And, but then his family stayed and continued to minister and then see God do mighty, mighty things uh, there. And so uh, Elizabeth Elliot, his wife, one time said, Our vision is so limited We can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. The love of God is of a different nature altogether. It does not hate tragedy. It never denies reality. It stands in the very teeth of suffering. This is a woman who knows well what it means to suffer for the sake of the gospel. One of the things that we must understand is that it is a gift of the Lord that oftentimes the movies in our head are not realized. We would have it that we would avoid all suffering and all pain and and we'll even say that God moves in spite of the suffering. And I want to challenge you to say that I think to use the word in the phrase in spite of is erroneous. I don't think that God moves in spite of our suffering and pain. I think oftentimes God moves intentionally through our suffering and pain. It is quite often God's intended plan on this side of glory in this temporary residence that is not our home for us to go through difficult seasons of life because in those difficulties, he's growing us. And if we can reconcile ourselves to that fact with an eternal mindset, with a missionary mindset that we have been sent here temporarily as missionaries, this is not our home, then when trials come, which seems to be a theme that the Lord had in our sermon calendar this year, what will we do when trials come? If you would, stand with me as we read God's word. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers... That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, 
whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Let's go to God. Lord, we are grateful for your written word this morning. We are grateful that Paul had a good theology of suffering, that he wrote this while being imprisoned in Rome, that he wrote it with joy. Lord, may we be challenged, encouraged, inspired, motivated, not in a temporary, fleeting, emotional only way, but God, that you would stir up within our hearts a desire to follow you wherever you ask us to go, to do whatever you ask us to do, and to serve however you ask us to serve. Lord, let not safety be our first importance. Let not comfort, let not preference. Lord, let us lay all those down today in submission to what you would have us do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The Elliots and Paul both share a healthy theology of suffering. They understand that it is often through suffering that God strengthens us. That it, They understand the old African proverb that smooth seas do not make skilled sailors. They understand that a life in this temporary world without trouble is likely a life in this temporary world without purpose and mission. That if we are to be truly on mission with our lives and each day and where he has put us, that that will almost assuredly lead to great difficulty in our lives. I think oftentimes in our mind we hear stories like this, like the Elliots and like Paul's, and we know that, yes, sometimes we will go through difficulties. And when we go through those difficulties, we know that God may do something for us. But I think, honestly, in our mind, those are the rarities, and, and, and we believe that most of the time he would have us get what we want and have comfort and, and avoid suffering. And I'm not telling you to pursue suffering. I'm not telling you to want suffering. I'm not telling you to be sadomasochistic. I'm telling you to have a realistic understanding of what your role on this earth is and that it's not primarily about you. Our time here is not about us. As I will always remind you, it is quick and easy math to weigh eternity to the short life that God will give you here. It is quick and easy math. And in an intellectual, philosophical way, that's a really simple idea to grasp. But in the day-to-day -day life, that is hard. I mean, it is hard in the day-to-day when you wake up and things hurt that you don't want to hurt and you can't do what you want to do and you have things you feel like you're supposed to do and you feel like there are all these obstacles and hindrances in your life and all these sufferings and all these things have gone bad, in those moments, 
that simple intellectual philosophical idea honestly is not super helpful. So what do we do in those moments? Well, I think this is why it is so imperative that we are ever before the Lord on our knees, that we are ever in his word, letting him transform our minds and our hearts so that when those difficult times come, as they often will, we'll be walking in the spirit and we'll have him leading and guiding us in that way. We'll react less in the flesh and more in what he has for us. And we will be willing in the moment, this is where it gets really hard, guys, in the moment of difficulty to say, what do you have for me in this, Lord? Now, it's a little bit easier post-difficulty to look back and think, what were you doing? Now that I'm not in that difficult season, now that I'm not surrounded by all the chaos of those circumstances, now that things have calmed down a little bit, I'm on the other side, now look back and see what God was doing. And I think that is a good exercise because it reminds us of God's faithfulness that he continues to work in us. But what I want to encourage you to do is a step of maturity even further and in that moment when it's difficult, in that moment when the movie in your head is not realized, in that moment when it seems like, like we looked at in the book of Esther, like we looked at in the, in, in the story of Joshua and Joseph and all the so many stories we've looked at in the scriptures, in those moments, in those Esther moments, to be able to right then say, for such a time as this, not what's past, right now, now, I, I know this book is a book about joy, and so you're probably thinking, man, I really thought this whole Philippians thing would be a lot more encouraging. Just hold on, and it will be. But I know that many of us are going through difficult things. 2020 has become a joke, a meme, a, a running thing that will be written about in history forever. And, and I got news for you, it's probably not going to, get much better. I mean, there's not a whole lot of 2020 left, but I don't know that things are going to automatically just get better. And, and listen to me, I don't know that some magical reset button is going to get hit on January 1. I think in our minds, like if we could just get through 2020 and maybe just get to 2021, but you realize that none of these things that matter to us that are making our lives difficult really care about a calendar. So what are we going to do in those moments? Well, Paul gives us some great leadership by example here. Look at just verse 12, what he says. And I just want to, we're going to stop for a moment, just quick in 12, to think about what he actually says here. So in verse 12, so think about he's been writing to these Philippians. We talked about last week everything that they've been through, their relationship uh, Acts 16 and the way that God brought the Philippian church together through Lydia and, and the Roman jailer and that when he was in jail in Philippi and the slave girl and how those were like the start of the house church of Philippi and how it's just been neat to see God do some things there. Um, and then he is writing this letter back to them because they have sent some money his way while he is in uh, Roman prison. They've sent somebody with some money 
uh, to help take care of him. And he's writing this back as a thank you letter. And so he's thanked them. He's, he's, he's told him he's praying for them. He's told him what he's praying for them, as we looked at last week. And in this thank you letter, he says, in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And that sounds really cool until you think about all that has actually happened to Paul. I mean, you got to, and all he says is, what has happened to me? I don't know that short of Jesus, anyone else has gone through more difficulty in life for the sake of gospel than Paul at this moment in his life. You understand the, the Philippians have this deep love and friendship with Paul and they send him on and he goes on to other cities. And then as we read the book of Acts, we see that, man, it just goes, it goes bad. And, I mean, it went bad when he was in Philippi, right? You remember that? I mean, how he ends up in jail, right? He leaves the, the slave girl, comes to Christ, and they beat them, beat, like beat the clothes off of them. And then throw them in prison and put them in these stocks that are contorting their bodies and are painful. And he gets his way out of that finally. And he makes his way out of there. And he goes to these other places. And he gets beat up almost everywhere he goes. But he has this desire to get to Rome. And he's wanted to get to Rome. And he wants to get to Rome. And he writes, Rome, I want to get to you. This is why Romans is such a good book of systematic theology. Because he was like, how do I just pour out everything that I need to say because I can't say it to you face to face. And so he writes this deep, long letter to the Romans. And he just has this desire as a Roman citizen to get to Rome and make a difference. And so he gets arrested and finally sees his chance. As they're about to beat him senseless, he goes, Hey, just a reminder, I am a Roman citizen. I need you to know, I don't think he is at that moment even trying to avoid the beating. I think he's gotten used to the beatings. I think he sees his chance. He knows how the law works, and he knows that if he appeals to the Roman government, they'll have to take him to Rome, and he'll finally, maybe he'll be arrested, but he'll be there. He'll be in Rome, and then just figure out what goes on from there. So his heart was to get to Rome, and so he is arrested, and then on the way there, he's shipwrecked, and he's bitten by a snake. And then he is arrested. And, I mean, and listen, I could, I could go on and I could read you all the other things that have happened to me. How many, how many times he was beaten uh, within an inch of his life and how many times all these different things have happened, right? But you keep all that in mind when he simply says, I want you to know that what has happened to me really served to advance the gospel. See, Paul has something within him that gives him the ability to just be content regardless of his circumstances. Like the movie in his head was probably not this. This is probably not how he thought he would get to Rome, but this is how he gets there. And they have expressed some concern from him. The Philippians, as we'll see, confirmed later in the letter. So they've sent this person with 
money to take care of him, and they're really concerned about everything that's going on because it seems like a really big hindrance, right? Paul's a guy that when he goes to a city, man, churches get planted. House churches are, are getting planted all over the place, and so the Christian movement is probably thinking, hey, this is not what we want. If, if, if Paul's going to be in prison for years, it seems like, and maybe even his head on a chopping block, like, is his ministry done? Is it over? And, and you gotta, you got to work hard to remove yourself a little bit from the knowledge that you may have, right? Because you, you may have the knowledge that while he was in prison, he wrote all these letters that we're reading today, and, and his ministry it really expanded maybe more from his time in prison than any other time. And you may know those things, but, but forget that for a minute and just think about what it must have been like at that moment for him. in prison and tired wanting to get out and plant churches and not seeing release anytime soon what does he say what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel I need you to think about something see in the story of Joseph who is in the Old Testament in Genesis right and He's the favored son, and, and so he's kind of annoying about that to his brothers. And so they decide they don't want him around anymore, and so they decide they're going to kill him. Then one of them says, no, don't kill him, and they just beat him up a little bit, and they throw him in a hole, and kind of, they're not killing him, but he's probably going to die anyway. And, and then some slave traders come by, and they're like, that's it, let's sell him as a slave. At least we're not killing him. But then he becomes a slave, and he's taken, and he ends up rising up in Potiphar's house, and then he's a falsely accused of something that he didn't do and he gets thrown into jail and while in jail he happens to interpret some dreams of a couple of guys who work for the king and and the pharaoh and so he interprets those dreams and they're they're you know the one that one of them was a bad interpretation he's going to die and one of them was a good you'll get to go back to your old job when you go back to your old job remember me well he doesn't remember him for a long time and then finally he does and then he interprets the pharaoh's dream and he works his way up into things and and then when, the, this, just a real quick summary of all this, then the brothers in food, and who's in charge of giving them food? Well, the brothers they sold into slavery and were going to kill. And so he is able to hide his identity from them a little bit. It's been a while, and he's dressed probably a lot differently. And, and finally, in Genesis chapter 50, when they have a conversation, they know who each other are, he says something that I've heard people change the wording in an important way, that they don't need to change it. He says, what you intended for evil. Now, how have you heard that finished? I've heard people say God used for good. But that's not actually what the text says in Genesis 50. It actually says what you intended for evil, God intended for good. See, this is what Paul understands here. Paul is not saying, in spite of the fact that I've been beaten up and arrested, but because of the fact that I'm in prison, God is using it because that's what he meant to do. And so, as hard as a word as this is today, whatever difficulties you're going through in your life, maybe you're not supposed to work so hard to try to fix it. Maybe you are. Sometimes we're supposed to. Maybe 
Maybe God has you going through what you're going through on purpose. And it's not his desire for you to find a way out. It's his desire for you to serve him and advance the gospel. What's interesting is this word for advance is just a letter or two away from the word for hindrance in the Greek. Like they're really similar words, so close that this is not a word that Paul has used often. As a matter of fact, the only other time that Paul uses this Greek word for advance is when he's talking later in 1 Timothy chapter 4 about the progression of, of our sanctification and this idea for advance is a military term, uh, and it, it means the advancing through hard terrain by means of sending advanced scouts ahead of you. Like this is a military term, meaning we're about to go through something really difficult, and the way that we get through it is we find a way to send some advanced scouts ahead of us to give us an idea of what's happening and so that we can work our way through the difficult terrain And he uses this word, I'm convinced, because it's a play on words. What we may think is a hindrance of the advancement of the gospel, God intends to be an advance. And so we need to look at our lives. So he says, so how is it an advance? There's a lot of time on one verse. Let's go. So that it has become known, it being the gospel, throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So what's happened here? Well, if you remember when he was arrested in Philippi, he was put in stocks that contorted his body uh, to torture him. Here he's in a Roman prison. He's appealed to Caesar, and he's been brought uh, into such a way where essentially he's on like house arrest, but he has a very interesting ankle bracelet. Not the kind of ankle bracelet we would have today on house arrest that pings your location on a GPS and gives you a radius that you're allowed to stay in. No, by an ankle bracelet, uh, most historians say that he is literally shackled to an imperial guard 24 hours a day in six-hour shifts. So every six hours, a different imperial guard is chained to Paul, and if you know anything about Paul, you see where this is going, right? Remember in Philippi when he was contorted and he just sang hymns and he just, I mean, just would not shut up. But then what do we see? We see the Roman jailer get saved. So here, Paul sees this unique opportunity, because here's what you need to understand about the imperial guard. I don't know that there could have been another way for the gospel to move amongst the imperial guard. They were hold off. They had different living quarters. This is like special forces, secret service type people. I mean, these are some of the most highly trained. They're to guard like bodyguard senators and and high-ranking government officials and high-value prisoners. And so their job was to keep him so safe that they literally were chained to him for six hours and it would rotate through, which means in a 24-hour period, Paul got four different guys he got to hang out with. And you got to imagine four hours of chained to the Apostle Paul, you will for sure hear the gospel. Maybe multiple times in multiple ways. 
You may ignore him for an hour or two, but eventually you will either probably get saved or wonder who is really getting tortured. And so Paul has a really unique opportunity here amongst the imperial guard. And then it starts to spread. And then he says something else happened in verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, now why is this? Well, it's the same reason I quote Elizabeth Elliot. It's the same reason I tell you that story of Jim Elliot. It's the same reason we look into those stories. It's the same reason the book, The Voice of Martyrs, has been a, a, a big selling book for a long time. When we, as believers in Jesus, as children of God, hear about other believers being bold and sacrificial in their faith, it does something inside of us. It encourages us. It excites us. It makes us think, look, I don't have a foreign tribe that might kill me, but I've got some neighbors and some family members where it'll just be really awkward. So maybe I can get over that awkwardness to share the gospel with family members or neighbors if Jim Elliott can sacrifice his life. If Elizabeth Elliot can stick around and continue to serve these people after they've killed her husband, then I can even share the gospel with my enemies. Right? There, there, there's an emboldeningness that happens. And so here's what's happened is the gospel has started to move amongst Rome. And they hear that the lead guy, the top guy at the time, the, the big missionary, the letter writer, the apostle, Paul, has been arrested. But in his time of being arrested, he has not been discouraged. He has not quieted. He has not silenced. He is literally seeing revival happen amongst some of the highest ranking military officials of Rome who have the, the emperor's ear, Caesar's ear, more than anybody else almost. And they get excited. And so they get bold and they start sharing the gospel more and start teaching the gospel more. One of the things we have to understand through the book of Philippians is that the gospel will always, everybody say always. The gospel will always advance. It will. God, God does not need you or me to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't. We get the opportunity, and it's a beautiful and amazing and incredible opportunity to join him in his work and be what the Bible says, co-laborers with Christ, which ought to just blow your mind, that concept. We have that opportunity, but we can waste it. And you know when we waste it the most, I think, in our trials and difficulties. So often when things are difficult, we turn more inward and we just grumble and we complain and we wonder why things are the way they are and the movie in my head is not happening. Surely this cannot be God's plan, but it is. And let the gospel will always advance. It's just a matter of whether we will participate. Earlier in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul reminds the Philippians who are going through persecution and difficulty themselves. And he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
God will finish the job. Romans 8, 28, probably one of the most often quoted verses in difficulty. Sometimes it's not fun to hear in the middle of the difficulty, but the truth is powerful and rings so loudly true. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, imprisonment, cancer, COVID, Elections going the way you want them or not going the way you want them. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you continue in Romans 8, you'll see that uh, that good is not our comfort necessarily. It's not our safety. Uh, that good is us being transformed more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the good. Now you go... Pastor, that's, I mean, I can't go my whole life just sacrificing everything I want for, for just serving Jesus. But, but, you, but you can some. You won't go your whole life. Even if you try, you will, you'll, you will always have like a magnet pull back to taking care of yourself more than serving Jesus. But I, I want us to constantly be mindful of the fact that this is temporary. We are missionaries here. This is not our home. And your personal ambitions and desires and the movies in your head are not why you're here. And one day, that will be so, so clear to us when we stand before the Lord. I don't think we'll have any regrets on that day. I think we'll be too distracted by the glory of Jesus to be regretting anything but I think we may have missed some things I know I have I know I have at some times in my life when things have not been how I want them to be but so focused on myself that I've missed what God was doing sometimes I've been able to look back and see what he was doing but sometimes I haven't See, this is not the exception. This is not something that happens to some people. This is not just something that happens when you are truly faithful. This is part of God's plan for you. Jesus said this would happen. Luke 21, verses 12 through 13. Jesus says, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So he didn't say, hey, if, if you're not careful, this is going to go really bad for you. No, he said, if you do what I ask you to do, this is going to go really bad for you. But in the midst of it going bad for you, it will be good for the kingdom. And if you care more about the kingdom than you do yourself, then Romans 8.28, it'll actually be good for you. All depending on how we define good. Suffering is not something that might happen. This is an intentional part of your progressive sanctification. Making you more like Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 15, or just really verse 12, says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
It's not strange when we suffer. It's not strange when things get difficult. It's part of what God has for us. Nick Ripken, that's not his name. Uh, He's actually from Jacksonville. He wrote a couple of books, one called The Insanity of Obedience. And um, he talks about how as a missionary, he was on the mission field in a couple of different countries. And the first place he was assigned, man, things went amazing. I mean, it was just perfect. And revival broke out in the city. Hundreds were getting saved. Churches were getting planted like crazy. It was just absolutely amazing. And he, he thought, man, this is it. This is what it's like to serve the kingdom of God. And then God called his family to move to another country where everything was horrible. I mean, it was all just really, really, really bad. Um, and he, he didn't see any salvations. He, he finally found a couple of believers and they, in the middle of the night, met in an abandoned building to take communion together. Within a couple of weeks, those believers were killed for their faith. The only reason he wasn't, because he was an American and they didn't want to start an international incident. His son passed away of an illness, an asthma attack. And he really started to question what it is to serve God. And so the mission organization he worked for asked him to go around and interview people that have served in persecuted lands and figure out how that mission agency could serve them through discipleship material and programs. And not surprisingly, he came away not figuring out a way that mission organization could serve them, but learning a lot about what it means to really serve the Lord. And in his observations, one of the things he said in his book is, let us be clear. The will of God is not always the safest place to be, but it is the only place to be. Paul is not calling the Philippians or ourselves to safely and comfortably add some level of Christianity to the life that we desire. Paul is calling us like he does in Galatians 2.20 to realize that I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. It's the life that I now live by the flesh. I live through Jesus who loved me and died for me. This is what it means to pursue Jesus in obedience. Paul also had an interesting theology of sincerity and what it means to be sincere as we serve the Lord. Look at verses 15 through 18. So, because of his boldness in the prison, some have become more bold preaching the gospel out there in Rome. And he says, but then he says, some indeed... Verse 15, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from good will. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense, that God providentially put him there for the defense of the gospel. But the former, those who preach out of envy and rivalry, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my Imprisonment, that word afflict really means to to harm almost physically. 
So Paul is saying, before I read verse 18, I'll explain what he's saying here. He's saying, so me being in prison, as kind of the leader of the movement, he's not necessarily saying that, but he's kind of at that moment the, the lead guy leading the, the gospel advancement uh, in the Roman world at that time, especially in as he's in prison and no longer out able to preach like he used to and plant churches, uh, it has emboldened some to step up their game and fill the gap, but it has emboldened others to go, hey, I wouldn't mind being as well known as Paul. I wouldn't mind people saying my name around as much as he does or people say his name. Matter of fact, I, I might start me a church and it might even be bigger than Paul's because he can't be here. And so out of selfish ambition, but the key here is what Paul says is, but what they are preaching is true. Now, in their hearts, they have selfish ambition and they're insincere in their motives. Then in verse 18, he says, what then? So what are we supposed to do about this? So maybe uh, the Philippians and their sending finances and everything communicated a concern about this idea And so he goes, so what are we supposed to do? Well, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Here's what I want to tell you. This encourages me as a pastor who stands in a pulpit on a regular basis. I would love to tell you that my heart is always right and pure in everything that I do and say. I'd love to tell you that. It's not the reality. Sometimes I care more about myself than I do you. But you know what I'm encouraged by? That even in those moments when I am spiritually weak, if I speak the truth of the gospel, his word does not return void. That that the growth is not based on me. And so I think we can use this to point fingers and go, are there people who are insincere? Out there in this world, yes. And every once in a while, you're looking at one of them. And every once in a while, when you look in the mirror, you're looking at one of them. But the beauty is that God is the one who gives the growth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, where there were some arguments over whether people should follow Paul or Apollos, who had very different teaching styles. And some really wanted Paul's kind of deep theological, just nitty-gritty, and some wanted Apollos's, who was apparently maybe better at telling stories and, and inspiring people. And so Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor for we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field God's building so here's what Paul is telling them I don't really care if you listen to me or if you listen to Apollos or you listen to both of us because it's God who gives the growth now he points back to this idea of sincerity, not even accusing Apollos of anything, but just saying, look, we'll do the work that God gives us, and then God will give us the wages. Our reward will be in heaven. And sometimes a lot of that reward will be based off of your sincerity, your heart, your motives. But, but don't, don't get it twisted. 
God is not limited by your holiness God, or lack thereof, nor is he mine. God is not limited by your sincerity. Now, your rewards, your fruit of righteousness, your fruit of blessing is limited based off of your sincerity and your motives. But God's work is never limited by us. So, we should serve with sincerity. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul says this in comparison. He says, For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So what should be our motive for serving the Lord in the midst of suffering, in the midst of good, in the midst of bad, in whatever situation God puts us, understanding he has put us there as missionaries? Well, it should be for the joy set before us. It should be for the joy that we will have one day. Joy we can have now, but really the joy we'll have one day. That eternal math again. Invest in heavenly treasures. And the greatest example of doing this is Jesus Christ himself. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, in light of the great stories of the heroes of the faith, in light of all the great movements of God and pretty much all of them through suffering, what should we do? We should work hard to remove every hindrance of sin in our lives and run this temporary race that God has given us here with our eyes on the prize. And then what does he say? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what do we do when the movies in our head don't happen? When life constantly throws us curveballs and circumstances that are not what we desire? Strive to get rid of the sin that hinders you. Run the race that God has given you for the joy set before you. Because that will be worth it all. To stand before the Lord one day. And understand that this is not in your own strength. But the good news of the gospel. That because of the joy set before him. The son of God died on the cross to pay for our sins. But that's the greatest, most resounding truth you'll ever hear in your life. That you could be forgiven of every sin and all the sin in your life. Adopted into his family and commissioned as a missionary. If that's not you, if that's not your story, I I would love for it to be. And I'd love to talk with you more about that. You can grab me after the service. You can text the church and contact us. We would love to talk with you more about that. If that is you and you have been commissioned as a missionary, then live as a missionary. Well, I haven't been commissioned as a missionary. Are you a believer? Then you have. You have. 
Spurgeon says every believer is either a missionary or an imposter. You, you are a missionary. Where have you been assigned to? I don't know. Where are you sitting right now? Where are you going to go home to? Who are you going to see tomorrow at work? Who are you going to see at your next family gathering? That is your mission field. Until God speaks otherwise and tells you to go somewhere, it doesn't mean you're not a missionary. It just means you already are right where God wants you to be. Let's run the race for the joy set before us. Let's pray. Lord, so grateful for the book of Philippians. So grateful for the work you've done through Paul that while he was in prison, he wrote this to us, not even knowing who we would be. And the Lord is... Maybe we're going through difficulties right now. Let us not miss what you're doing. Or for anyone here who has not surrendered their life to you and been adopted, redeemed, forgiven, I pray that you would awaken their heart and we would get to see that happen. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen.